If one of the hardest things to figure out these days is what to watch next, first of all, congrats. Second of all, you should check out HBO Max. Discover something new to watch on HBO Max like Lovecraft Country, the new HBO series from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams that's got everyone buzzing. Plus, HBO Max is the only place you'll find new binge-worthy Max originals like Selena Gomez's new cooking show. You heard that right. Selena Gomez's Learning to Cook, from some of the world's best chefs, no less. Find your next favorite all in one place on HBO Max. Start streaming today. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Cellular. Let's talk about your cell phone carrier. When you think about your plan, does what you're getting feel fair? When it comes to staying connected, don't settle. When you switch to U.S. Cellular, not only do you upgrade to fair, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's fair. Learn more at uscellular.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the founder of the venture capital firm, Anti-Social Capital, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. It can only mean I said anti-social that I'm here with someone who is my one of my favorite people, <laughs> though don't tell him, Chamath Palihapitiya, the CEO of Social Capital. He's been on the show twice before to talk about the state of venture capital. He always says something crazy. The last time was August 2017, so we've got a lot to catch on. There's a lot going on in Chamath's life. We also, with us, have Teddy Schliefer. He is covers money and power and politics for Recode. Uh, Chamath, welcome back to Recode Deco. What's up? What's up? What do you mean, what's up? What's up with Everything. you? Chamath, every time I turn around, you're in the news. What, Everything. Let us say who you are. You are a longtime venture capitalist. You worked at Facebook. You worked at AOL. From those who don't know the Chamath. So you're a well-known figure of Silicon Valley. Don't give me that look. Yeah. Okay. And? And? What's been going on? Um, <clears throat> well, a lot of things. Yeah. So last we met, you had all these people you hired, Mark, uh, whatever, Chelsea Clinton's. I think it's easy. I mean, basically, I hired a bunch of people, then I transitioned and let go some people and some people left. And um, But it's all more explainable in a sort of bigger idea. So, all right. Okay, because you last time you had a big idea, you were going to change venture capital. When you, I wrote a story about it. And yeah, you, you I had think, all these concepts around the, this full service. Is that correct? A full yeah, service. Yeah. What? I mean, the the general idea was that I thought that there was too much emotion in the business. Okay. And the answer to that was just using data and information. And most of the information to make better decisions sat inside of a company. Uh-huh. So the simple idea there was if you, instead of having MBAs with spreadsheets, had data scientists working at a venture capital firm, they would be able to ask the company for the real data that mattered. They would be able to build models. They would be able to make much more precise predictions. Um, And then the investment decisions would be much more unbiased, meaning you wouldn't necessarily care as much about the gender, the look, all these other labels around a CEO, but instead you would be able to see how good they were because it manifests in the business ultimately. Right. And that's the organization I I set out to build. You you had had a tradition. A relatively traditional venture capital to start with, right? Rel- Not really. I mean, I, I had always been doing the job in that way. The team that I had hired from Facebook helped me do that. I had, you know, a couple of people that I hired that were very traditional, mostly because I wanted a patina of that world in case it mattered. 
Mm-hmm. In case it mattered with fundraising, with LPs, because, you know, the first few funds, you know, I was probably two or three hundred million dollars of the money, but I still needed, you know, six or seven hundred million dollars of other people's money. So it helped, with, so it helped with fundraising to it, have. It, it, you know, it helps with patina. Some, some crazy guy shows up, you know, basketball team owner out partying, all that. It doesn't paint a great picture if you're at a pension fund and, yeah. you know, this guy's asking for a hundred million dollars, but you take a couple straight-laced people who went to MBA school and they got, they got the job done. Uh-huh. But they were good people and they contributed to the organization. Don't get me wrong. But something much bigger happened, which was at the end of last year, I think I went through what I would call an identity crisis that I think I will predict that not only Silicon Valley will go through, Mm -hmm. but I predict most every human in the world will absolutely feel in the next five to 10 years. And I think it goes along the following lines. And I'm a byproduct in many ways of having built a lot of the social media infrastructure that I think exacerbated some of these feelings. But, you know, I had in the last nine years, basically, I was a billionaire at 32. Okay. Okay. I owned a sports team at 33 or 34. I, you know, was, you know, deemingly like people would say, charismatic guy, interesting guy, funny guy, married three beautiful kids living in the most expensive zip code in the United States, blah, blah, blah. And I was so confused about what it took to make me happy. And I was getting increasingly confused every day. And so the cycle was, oh, maybe it's more deals. Maybe it's more money. Maybe it's more vacations. Maybe it's a fancier vacation. Maybe it's I fly on a better plane. Maybe it's a nicer pair. It just kept escalating, but at the end of it, I was emptier and emptier. So the counter effect was I would either, you know, be spending time with people that weren't necessarily nourishing me. I was spending time in ways that amplified my anxiety and my um, feelings that I was somehow missing out or inadequacy or insecurity. And instead, what would be left over is not filling a void, but a void that was equal in proportion to how fake all those experiences were. And it was all around can, me. Can I ask, what set it off? Was there anything that just was a growing, gnawing sense of emptiness? It was a, it was a growing, gnawing sense, but I know what the, what, I know what the spark okay. was that lit the match. All right. And that was my speech at Stanford in 2017. All right. Talk so what, about that. What did you say then? It was... To some people, me at my best, but in my interpretation, it was me at my worst. And I was a really good person about never really being authentic around my insecurity, but not wearing it on my vest or on my sleeves to such a degree that I would lose sight of the person I was and how I should behave. And... If I look back on that, and on many of the speeches that I've given or the talks that I've given, I look back because I like to see where I was in my point of evolution because my presumption is I should be evolving. And and in all of the things that I look at, I'm actually relatively proud except that one. And that's the one that has millions of views, and it's the one where I said, you know, social media is ripping apart the fabric of society, right. this is what- all of which is relatively true. The, the forum on which I did it, I think, was misplaced. And the way I did it was in such a dilettante way, and it was wrapped in all this other nonsense about, you know, the people that run the world and their wealth, and that it was just so contorted and contrived. And what it was was just me almost barfing out 
this last burst of unhappiness and insecurity. And it was my way of saying, I had been told or had convinced myself that that is what we were all struggling for. And I have finally gotten behind the curtain to realize that that is a complete farce and it's a joke. And now I'm left completely confused and and almost alienated because I'm like, where do I fit in? What do I fit into? What am I trying to do? Well, let me, one of your brands has been not fitting in. I mean, you, that's one of the things you've been most proud of is that you are counter contrarian is one of your things. You say what you think, you, you know, you, you pull the cover off of venture capital or th- these guys. But those are, are all superficial things. Those are easy to do because honestly, if you have even one, one vertebrae of a backbone, that's easy because most of those people are fake and they live in a very superficial, sad definition of what right. depth is. Right. But at some point, if you're lucky enough, like, for example, my parents were deeply dysfunctional. Alcoholism, psychological issues, depression, abuse, all of that stuff. They didn't have time to unpack. Right. Job to job, housekeeper, you know, uh, photocopy store clerk, unemployed, vacuum salesman, encyclopedia salesperson. That's what they did. Yep. I always say my grandfather grandmother didn't have time to be unhappy. They didn't. My parents did not have to. They had time to be dysfunctional or and completely fucked up. But they didn't have time to be unhappy. They didn't have time to be introspective. They didn't have time to protect their kids. They didn't do any of that stuff. What parents, if you're in a position, can and must do. So my point is, I'm in a different situation, which is I do have the time. You have the so ability it, to have an identity crisis. There's no, there's no. I wouldn't even, yeah, I have the ability to introspect and actually ask myself these questions. Who am I? And this is where I got confused about what makes me happy and how do I define my core happiness. And for a long time in my naivety, my definitions were very superficial. They were the things that other people would also value. Whether it's a job title, a promotion, you know, working at one company over another, you know, the money you make, um, the trips you take, the experiences you have, because they're all relatable to other people. And in today's environment, they're very relatable in a post, in a tweet, in a picture. And so it amplifies the short-term feedback that tries to tell you that life is good. But at some point when it gets so perturbed um, and so perverted— what the speech that did this? You gave the speech, and it was quite well, a humdinger so, of a speech. So, well, my point was, like— I had been exploring why, after the accumulation of all of these things, more companies invested in, more funds raised, more notoriety, more, people, right. more television appearances, more this, more that, more everything. Why, why? The question is, like, why weren't you more happy? Why am I not more happy? In fact, I'm less happy. And in fact, I think that I've actually really bastardized some core relationships in my life where I've created hyper-transactional relationships in many areas of my life. Good way of putting it. And I don't think that that's what I wanted. And so it was in almost that low. When I was at Stanford, I kind of just like let it all out. And it was from there that I started to make these systematic decisions in my life that I felt were lingering and I hadn't had the courage. First, I would say, and I think, and I would put most people in this category, didn't have a toolbox right. to even address it. And I and that has nothing to do with rich or poor. It has a lot to do with sort of like your condition when you're growing up. Like I have a funny thing that my friends and I talk about, which is 
You know, like white people have a right to be crazy. You guys can live on a spectrum of normal and crazy. Brown people, black people, Chinese yeah. people, you know, we are all like normal on the outside and fucking totally nuts on the inside. Right. That's what we you do. Have present. You have we got to present. present. We show up normal, right. but we're really nuts. Right. You know? I always thought you were nuts, Jamal. Thank you. Along. Um, so I didn't have the toolkit. Then when I had a toolkit, it's like, okay, use the toolkit and figure out what did I want to do to actually, you know, get emotionally healthier. You know, build a sense of self-worth and an identity that was divorced from a lot of these outside signals. It is so much harder to do than I thought. And it's an ongoing process. And in that, what I did was I profoundly made changes. One of them was in the organization because I said, I'm raising all these funds. I'm bringing in all of this money. I'm flying around the world to the Middle East, to China, to all these places, not for my own validation and happiness, but to get the validation of other people who then don't make me happy even when they do validate me. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, in Italian, there's a beautiful word, basta, which is basically like your way of saying enough. enough. And so I woke up in one day and I was like, basta, enough. Yeah. And um, so you had, let me just, let me just stop you. The, you had done the, the public offering of the, the transaction. What was the SPAC. The, the SPAC, SPAC yeah. yeah. Of that thing. And I remember being at dinner with you at, yeah. with that fancy, the grill in New yeah, York. Yeah, the grill. I, I was already the day at of. Yeah. The day of. This was before this revelation, correct? This was—that was one of the craziest dinners I've ever had. You yeah, had ridiculous— This was like mid-2017, late yeah, 2017? Yeah, yeah. They, they had a bottle of wine that was like a zillion dollars, and they were like, would you like some? And I'm like, no, it's like it's $1,000 a glass. Right. No, no, thank you. I can't I can't take that, ethically speaking. But that was a crazy dinner, and I remember walking away thinking, what the fuck is going on with Shamath? Because it was like—it yeah. was a, yeah. it was manic, actually, I would call it. It was a manic dinner of all these people, and you were manic, and the, and this package just happened, and obviously you all were elated by it, but it was sort of— That was very euphoric at that time. Yeah, that. euphoric. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, euphoric I think is a better word well, than manic. manic is what but, I thought. Um, but I, but I think you're right. Like, I was definitely living out. And look, I would not take those experiences away from my life. I think that those were really interesting. But they were interesting for me now as learning. Uh-huh. And it's given me more courage to be who I want to be. So who did I want to be? I wanted to run an organization that made, you know, really thoughtful decisions in industries that I really cared about, even when all the people around me didn't understand or didn't care. That required a different set of people, a different organization. And the beautiful thing is at this point now, it did not require anybody else's money. Right. Isn't one of the challenges here, though, I mean, that part of, like, being a venture capitalist and maybe, maybe, you know, as the firm becomes effectively a family office, you guys are doing different things. But isn't one of the challenges that, like— I don't like the term family office because I don't think that's what it is. Not uh, all all personal capital. Um, well, no, I think it's a holding company. A holding company. It's a company that has the ability to buy and build anything it wants. Isn't one of the challenges that there are folks out there who, too, depended on you, or who were other, other VCs of social capital, LPs? I mean, one, one, of the, one of the challenges when you already have an existing infrastructure, like a firm, is then when you want to change things, you know, it can be pretty dramatic, right? I mean, I'm— how, How you, did you feel about that? Because when you say Basta, I, I think about that a lot myself. I, I know what you mean. Look, we've taken a couple billion dollars in, and we've compounded that money at between 30 and 40% a year. Yeah. So to all the people that worked for me and whose money I took, you're fucking welcome. <laughs> you're fucking welcome, meaning what? That you, you, that you gave them stuff and that was enough. I, was, I hired them. Yeah. And LPs hired me to do a job. We did the job we were asked to do. 
But just like Michael Jordan had a decision to retire and go play baseball, I chose to retire and go play baseball. All right. Now, I may come back to basketball, right. but this is my decision. I am not your slave. Right. I just want to be clear. Yeah. My skin color 200 years ago may have gotten you confused, but I am not your slave. So, but how hard was that still? Come on. You know that. You know, when it you was people, not that hard. Yeah. You just were like— It was not that hard. Yeah. But this is because, like, when you realize that you are living somebody else's life— Listen, it's not to take away from these accomplishments. They are meaningful. Uh-huh. But if I don't value them, then let somebody else do it because they will value it and they will be more honorable with those things. And if I couldn't do that, then I didn't want to be in that role. So when you say— And I, by the way, I have that right. right. This is what, I, I, this is what shocks me. No, I'm not saying you don't, obviously. It's, but it's that it has repercussions that cause— because nobody does that. Nobody walks away. Yeah, and nobody also pays millions of dollars to their ex-partners and, you know, gives them severances. I mean, sure. But does that get reported? Are these people out on the street? Are these LPs licking their wounds thinking, oh, my gosh, we've lost money? No. What are we talking about? You gave me $50 million. I gave you hundreds of millions back. You worked for me. I'm giving you millions of dollars, in some cases tens of millions. What is the issue? So Please think- go. Find something else to do, and well, we'll all be leaving. okay. Come on, Chamath. Come on. Like the leaving is bothers people. I'm not. <laughs> look, you have the right to do it, but it does create repercussions. And people are like, "What?" That depend on you. Did you? The dep- I get you, that it's easy, but it's not as easy for everybody else. When when the center you, person does, if that. you were, it's not easy emotionally. Right. It's not easy psychologically. I acknowledge all of that. My point is, it's a right, and we all have the right to do it. You could also say no employee should have the right to quit a company because you're leaving all your your right. fellow employees in the lurch. Yes. Guess what? People do. So should I feel a different level of guilt than other people right. feel individually for making decisions to optimize for their life? What about a doctor who works in a really impoverished part of the United States who says, you know what? I paid my dues. I'm moving back to New York City. Uh-huh. Is, that, is that guy's decision worse or better than mine? Is the person that, you know, the engine, the critical security engineer at Facebook that quit one day, is that person's job, when he goes to quit, worse or better than my decision? Uh-huh. So you don't, you don't feel as a VC that you're sure. somehow, these folks are more dependent on you than, you know, a, a patient of a doctor is or a client of a lawyer. You have the right what to What is happy. the argument? Yeah. You're telling me, like, you all of a sudden, like, you should legislate who can cannot quit their jobs? It, nonetheless, it created— It's idiotic what you're saying. Yes, I get no. I mean, it yeah. sounds really fucking stupid. All right, but. now— it still creates acrimony with the people who left. That's you. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. How did you deal with that? Uh, I went to Italy, spent the summer there, had a fabulous, fabulous time. Where'd you go? Um, everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Italy's a great My place. girlfriend's Italian, yeah. I know that. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, so yeah. I, I kind of like, um, I just detached and decompressed. Uh-huh. Now, you also changed your personal life. You just mentioned your girlfriend. Incredibly, like, you know— um, Part of the process was just realizing that when I got married, uh, I was married to a wonderful woman, and she's an incredible person. But I had such a limited toolkit. And what I mean by that is, like, I had no—I didn't even understand what it meant to be emotionally intimate with somebody. Uh Like, I had really good friends, or my definition of good friends, but they were friends that I'd be partying with or gambling with or never sharing my emotions with, really. Um, And so I had no— ability to build really any emotional intimacy. And relationships, whether they're romantic or not, are hard if you're really going to invest in them. And, you know, in such a long time of knowing my ex-wife, it's just like, 
you know, you have these meaningful changes. And what I and what I would look back is it say the spark that lit that fuse was in around 32, 33. It's like it was just so much capital that gives you so much optionality. And sometimes optionality is good. Choices are good. Uh-huh. But too much choice can yep. be very destabilizing. And then, you know, you make decisions in your life which you can't unwind. You know, what job do I do? Where do I work? Where do I not work? And all of these things at some point can create, if you can't talk about it, resentment and issues. And, um, you know, unfortunately, my wife and I were not able to work through them. Um, But she's an amazing mom. She's, you know, has been an amazing partner to me. But it was a a decision that I think we felt was the right decision. Uh-huh. Thing to do, yeah, which also destabilizes people. Listen, you know, I got a divorce. So, you, know, I, I get, I get what you're talking about. Well, what I found was in my divorce, none of my friends were upset that I had gotten divorced. They were deeply offended that I hadn't told them and that they didn't know that it was coming. And in it was how I realized how emotionally broken I was and incapable of really connecting with people. Like people had always said, "Oh, Chmuth, you're, you know, you're candid." And then candor went transition to, oh, you're pretty authentic. <laughs> but what I realized is those are still very superficial. And the ability to be really authentic and, like, emotionally present with somebody is super hard. It is. And um, I, didn't know how, I didn't know how to do it. Not as, like, if you said, hey, be emotionally intimate. I would have been like, what are you talking about? How to share, how to listen, how to be a good, like, listener to a friend, and how to— for me, even just to share some really deeply intimate things that I've been dealing with or have dealt with, with people that I hadn't before, it was, it's not what we did in my family growing up. It's like, you know, you push it down, yeah, put it in a little box, put it far away, <laughs> show it. up, go to work, well, make the white man proud. my Italian. We don't do that. <laughs> yeah, well, just so you know. All right. We're here talking with Shamath Palihapati. He's the CEO of Social Capital. We're going to take a quick break now in this intense session, which intense. I'm loving. I love it. And we'll be back after this. Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. If you're an early adopter, you get that your devices and your connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair, too. Fairness isn't a new idea, but it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to fair. Learn more at uscellular.com. We're here with Chamath Palihapati. He's the CEO of Social Capital, and we're talking, we're going down. Now, one of the things that I'm thinking about when, when you're talking like this is that Silicon Valley, this, this culture, the Silicon Valley tech culture, talks about change and disruption a lot, but they don't like it that much. In fact, they don't. I mean, they hate it. 
if I can thread what I was saying yeah. before into sort of like sure. the business part. Yeah. I think there's a lot of profound. So, you know, I am now much happier than I've ever been. But in my happiness, what I'll tell you is I actually have more moments of happiness and elation as well as sadness. I, I actually like feel the ups and downs and the totality of it. I'm actually more present in it. And as a result, I'm actually just happier because I'm more grounded in my right. values. Okay. There's an old saying that if you don't feel the pain, you're not going to feel anything else. Anything else. Yeah, I think that's a really good saying. I think a lot of people are very repressed and they live in this halcyon days here of just like, it's great, disruption, disruption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But really what I think is that the underlying part of it is, which is why I think churn is so high, employees are so dissatisfied, is that they are all so deeply unhappy. In Silicon Valley, people are much, much unhappier. They might, much, be, they might be rich, but they're not necessarily happier. Or, or they perceive that they may be rich because of stock options, which we can talk about later, which may not be actually worth much of anything. But the point is that I think people in Silicon Valley at this point in time are the most unhappy they've ever been personally. Hmm. They're the most probably detached. They're the least civilly engaged. They're the least emotionally intimate. Um, it's all of these things that conflate to just making people really feel empty. And that exists here in spades. And so how it manifests into businesses is that at some point, you need to have a real emotional spark to do something really meaningful at some point. And I think that a lot of people um, play the kabuki theater, the charade of a startup. But if you're just so preoccupied with your own happiness, there's a general malaise that you bring into the office. And I think as a result, the things that one does at the office aren't as good. And so the companies themselves end up being that meaningful. And I think we're in that wave right now. How do we address it? I honestly... Well, I, I want to know why it happened first before... Oh, well, I think it happened because you have a lot of really, really young people who grew up in front of phones who are completely disconnected from their own real tactile lives, and they mm -hmm. don't know how to define happiness, Kara. Your kids, my kids, Teddy and probably Teddy's like... Brothers. ...are super unhappy. Tell the truth. I mean, honestly, wait, yeah. Teddy, tell the truth. Do I think people of my generation are unhappy? I think that ultimately there's, yeah, I think there, there's an ex the experience we've grown up with is through a device all the time. And I think you're right about that. Like my generation, like I'm, like we were like pretty gung-ho, kind of like found ways to be happy. When I'm talking about my unhappiness before, yeah. it was a level of core emotional unhappiness that, that came after a long period of exploration. But at some point, like, you just got to be happy during the day with the, and I just think that I don't see that as much anymore. Yeah. Um, and I and I and I wonder why there's just so much, sort of like ideological extremism. Why there's just so much vilification? Why? Mm. And I think at the root of it is deep dissatisfaction with oneself, and that's what comes out. You see the world as you live it, and so if you live it as someone who's getting increasingly resentful and bitter, you lash out and are increasingly resentful and bitter. If you see the world as trusting and happy, you kind of see the positive side of a world that is trusting and happy. You know, you can take the same healthcare stat and one person will say, my gosh, like, you know, we're all doomed. And the other person says, look at the advancements we've had. And thank God that this is happening. So um, company building today, I think, needs people who are generally happy. Um, because I think it allows you, especially startups, which don't overcompensate necessarily, although now that's not true, mm -hmm. which is working on these lofty goals, needs belief. And belief is rooted not in anger. Well, did they start off right? happy? Do you think a lot of these companies started off with that concept? I think that the first, like, I think if you look at the generations of the companies when you and I were first here in the 2000s, right. why were we here? We were not here for... Um, 
Silicon Valley, um, you know, profiles on HBO yeah. books and all this stuff. No, it was we cool. were. It was, it, it was not. It was so uncool to be here. Yeah. And so you had to be happy to be here. And the happy. It was very exciting. It was very. Exciting. It was very exciting. The lower slung the building, the better, right? The dorkier and dirtier and smellier the engineering pit, the better. Yeah. And now it's like these all this pristine gleam and shine, and it's all packaging to look like something that should be in a movie. But underneath, I think, to a lot of people is just a charade and a nightmare. So you think the wrong types of people are coming to Silicon Valley these no, days? No, 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 no. I think, like, the, it's, it's the people, people are coming. You need the people. But the people are fundamentally unhappy. And the, part of the reason why people are unhappy these days is that they've been fed a bill of goods that, that they're turning out to not actually help them. Meaning, like— you were prophylactically doing things in in a way in which that thought that you thought would get you informed, more engaged, more understood, you know, more sympathy, more empathy, mm. and it's the opposite. And those things are really sacred things to be playing with. And right now, you're not playing with them in a one-on-one. Like imagine, like how those things went up and down in a relationship you had in high school, and how devastating or exhilarating it was. Uh, okay, and you had two or three of those interactions, maybe maximum in your life. Now you have fifty to a hundred of them a day. They're much more small scale, but they happen day over day, day over day. Right. Just take a step back and just ask yourself honestly: Do you not think this stuff impacts your your psyche and your definition of yourself, your core happiness? Don't you think that that's happening? I will tell you that it happened to me. I tend to think if it happened to me, it's going to happen to the rest of you. So, what is in place that creates that? One is money. Or is that not the problem? No, I don't think I don't I don't I think money is an accelerant to find your true self. So if yeah. you're meant to be a jerk, you're gonna be a jerk just faster. Right. Um, with more stuff. With it's more stuff. I think the thing that's accelerating all of this is we haven't really done a good job yet of creating a new generation of heroes that show a set of values and choices that are worthwhile. I'll give you a different example. You know, um, when I was single, I was shocked at what sort of like what it means to date in 2019. Mm-hmm. Not shocked like I'm some like puritanical guy, mm. but I was shocked at just how valueless it all was. Uh-huh. Both the hookup culture and even the dating culture because like nobody understood how to build a bloody relationship. Nobody, nobody really knew how to like share and actually even create a bond. And I was just like, this sucks. How did this happen? Because that's not what I remember dating to be like right. as a simple example. And then I thought, but these are all good people. How did they end up just so detached and <laughs> tender, <laughs> no, broken and just – so I think that there's an entire suite of experiences, a whole suite of them that are combining in unforeseen ways um, to just rewrite just the norms of society and I think that we haven't done a good enough job in saying to ourselves that as that happens, the mental health of of me as an individual also matters. It's like as if, for example, like let's just say Whole Foods didn't exist and all it was was a candy store. And let's just say all Safeways and all A&Ps and, all, you know, every single grocery store was replaced with only candy. And we lived in a world where you could only eat candy. Some was healthier for you, some was not. Some had protein, so you could roughly get what you needed. It would be completely non-stigmatized to say, well, all I can eat is candy from a candy store. 
there are better candies and worse candies, but I realize what it does to my body. And so I'm also going to get a, you know, a membership at the gym or I'm going to create a regimen of workout to sort of like help me deal with the implications of my food intake. Seems really like a de-escalated conversation. Nav, I said, well, there's all this information that I'm consuming that, that you know, has positive and negative impacts on my mind, still not clearly well understood. So I'm going to prophylactically do something to help manage my mental health. You sound like a crazy person. Right. And that's, that's the tragedy of what, Teddy, your generation and, Kara, your kids and my kids uh-huh. are going to feel head on. Right. All right. What about the business of here? What happens then? Because right now, Silicon Valley has gotten a lot of pushback on a lot of the things it's made. As you know, and you talked about it, you've right, talked this, about This it. is the Stanford speech, right? I mean, Facebook. Well, know. no, the Stanford speech was just more about, you know, just talking about what Im- what the impacts of some of those things were. But and this also, is precisely what you're saying in a different way. You're saying the same thing. Well, I mean, like, look, I think that people would be crazy to say that, for example, like Google hasn't advanced humanity by 10 to 100x. Right. So have they done some things that are on the you know, at points sketchier or could they have done better? Mm-hmm. Sure. Would you want to be in a world without Google? I would not. I don't think anybody really does or understands the implications. So you feel their negative impact is overestimated? I think that the thing that has happened is that there has been a transition from achieving a mission to optimizing a business model and yeah. maximizing a business model. Right, and advertising. It, and it happens when growth slows. So think about in a company, how a company works. A company is just a complex set of interpersonal relationships. And you need to transition from, um, you need to keep everybody motivated at all times. And first the motivation is, oh my gosh, look at all of these new things we're building that people want. People want us. We're popular. We're popular. Make more of the things. The things are amazing. These things are delicious. Delicious. Make the things. And then at some point, people stop buying the things because they have the things. And then the team is like, the employees are like, should we be sad now that nobody wants our things? No, because we're going to charge more for those things. And now you're going to count these other things. And those things are called money. And then so it's always a game of hot potato around motivation and morale. And as it transcends and filters into a company, that's how you first focus on product market fit. Then you focus on growth. Then you focus on revenue. And in these transitions to revenue, what has happened to all these companies is that they've done what they were supposed to do as a for-profit public company. Go and maximize revenue. Go and maximize profits. Right. The implications are not, in my opinion, for them to bear. The implications are for society to bear and for governments to bear. And then what? So it's well, just that this is naturally twofold. the way— I'll tell you twofold. They, this is naturally the way they were going to—it was going to happen is what you're saying. Like, like yeah. Like, what, what a surprise. This is normal. What a surprise. Isn't that new news? Right. You know? Well, it is a little bit because they said they weren't it's like not. that. Care, I know, but care. you you know they—you know there was a whole— And you believed them? They believed them. I didn't. I never believed them. Okay. But basically, the argument here is these were companies that were always set out to make money, and now they're making money, and that's to a certain extent— that's not their it's fault. Not, they're, they're doing their job. They're doing their job, right? Society, for example, you, you know, know they didn't start on. You know they're they're. Gay. I think I think that they were they, not. They I weren't hucksters that, for sure. No, they were not. They believed that they were doing the right thing. We yeah. believe we were doing the right thing, and I think we've realized that it's a much bigger thing than we thought it was. Here's my point, though: society has a responsibility. The society's responsibility is to do what I just said, which is how do I optimize for my mental health? I'm just. I'm going to put it bluntly. 
the people that think they don't, like, I'll, I'll put it differently. Let me just tell you the scale of the mental health crisis, and I'll just use the United States as an example. Men, okay, men. Men live somewhere between seven to ten years less than a woman. Right. Same zip code, same education, same health, blah, 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 okay? Now, you're asking my personal theory. How is that possible? I'll tell you. Women have a much better path to mental health than men do. Women talk. Women learn that it's okay to be emotional at a very young age. Women learn about emotional intimacy. They're taught that it's okay to have relationships where you share intimate details. You may get betrayed. You may not. You'll get supported. Sometimes you cry. Sometimes you feel really low. Sometimes even depressed. Sometimes you'll feel amazing. It's all normal. You're normal. There's an enormous number of people exactly like you in the world. Guys, hey, that's cool. Hey, yeah, Sports. let's go. Dunk a basketball. Huh, hey, yeah, let's watch this football. Hey, that girl, she's hot. Uh, yeah. How you doing? Not, Good. Not, not Hungry? I just, I just, yeah. Well, this was my last beer. week. Uh, my beer. Son. Yeah. Um, so beer. so, that, so, so yeah. now, now you see this duality, and it builds. And so as a result, I think what happens are, in my opinion, men, why do they live less? Because they have just taken in so much toxic garbage into their body. They've also spewed it out. Come on. Yeah, but they, but they, and they, they don't know how to deal with it, okay? Right. And so they compartmentalize and they tuck it in, and I think it destroys men bottoms up at a very cellular level. I honestly, I think so. And so that to me is the state of the mental health crisis in America. It's at least 175 million people, <laughs> and yeah. it's growing. Right. So we got to just destigmatize it and make it okay for people to talk and people for be able to to be emotionally connected to other people and and not value obvious things and also then not vilify the things that were obvious before. Meaning, like I look at all of this stuff around AOC, and what's shocking to me is right. like, why is it all of a sudden so bad to be unsuccessful or to be successful? It should never have been bad before. Okay, if you think about the progress that we've made, civil rights, medicine, politics, all the things that have happened were fueled in part by money that was created out of a capitalist system. Okay, we have a political philosophy in America that works, which is capitalism plus democracy. They're inexorably twined. Uh You can't have one and without the other and all of a sudden have a counterfactual and say we would have been the same. Right. It's disingenuous. But the reason why people can get so angry is because, A, they don't like what they are, nor do they like what anybody else that they see. So I think step one would be to really fix who one is and try to make oneself a little bit happier around the well, things I that think, they Well, I think, although I, to be, I think she's talking about inequality, which has never been a great, mm-hmm. you she's know, absolutely talking about she's it. She's tapping, I think what Shemal she's tapping into an anger. She's and, tapping into anger. And Kara, to, I know AOC. You know why? I was her. Uh-huh. I am her. I'm just a less angrier version than her. She's not <laughs> angry. You're wrong. You're 100% wrong. You're no. missing her completely. No, I don't think so. I think you're all terrified of someone who's actually I'm not. talking about something that's important, which is the enormous inequality of wealth and opportunity in this country. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not actually scared of her at all. Well. I, I really don't. And I, and, I, and, I, and I think that she's like an impressive person. I think like in, in, you know, if I was able to do what she could do, I would do it too. Uh-huh. Um, but I also am smart enough to know how I would do it, and I would do it exactly the way that she's doing it. Right. And I think a lot of it is tapping into a lot of latent anger. No, I think she's saying enough is what she's doing. You're do- she's doing exactly what you're doing. She's saying that's enough of that. That's enough of this. Of me too. It's enough of this. It's, it's what a lot of women are saying for sure about behavior of men in Silicon Valley. 
That's fucking yeah, I mean, enough. Sure. We've had it. Well, I, I mean, I was gay people did it 10 years, 20, sure. 20 years ago. I, I'm enough. Not, I'm not trying to take away from right. that. I'm, I'm, I'm no, actually I'm more saying, like, it's a, like, you know, when I think about like, 70% taxes or like the Green New Deal. That's not what like she's talking about. Like a non-binding it's thing. A, it's the beginning of a conversation. That's what it is. I think you're not, you, she's she's obviously more sophisticated than you at this point because she's ta- she's starting a conversation that you know she's going to come to, the, to come to, it will compromise about. That's what it always, you have to start saying, I will not sit, I will not sit in the back of the bus. I will not do this. I will not do that. It has to start with those kind of things. I think we're saying the same thing then. Well, I guess. It starts from a more angry point, Kara. Yeah. And then yeah. you chill the fuck out. Guess what? Yes. I but started in a re- Kara, I started in a really angry place, yes. and now I'm a lot less angry, but and I bet you I'll be a lot more Let me just tell you, the strides that gay people had started with silence equals death. It started with ACT I'm up. I'm not saying it's wrong. Right. No, I'm just I get it. saying I get it. it is. But, 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 but you, you're, you're getting so offended because by Because you're fa- attacking someone who I think is talking about critical issues in our society. I am not attacking it. I was investing in, in uh, climate change and healthcare right. since 2000. You were. I, that is true. 11. Yeah, I was putting in hundreds of millions of dollars of my own money, so I put my money where my mouth is. Yeah, her agenda I agree with. Right, but the tactics. All I'm saying is, I'm just looking at it. And I'm like, oh, I've been there before. I was the angry person right. spouting off about climate change in 2011. I didn't do it as eloquently as she did. Right. Okay. I didn't. You know, my version of that was maybe blathering on a tech crunch. Her version of that You're is not a non-enforced. Keep in mind, I'm she's not. Also, she's also 29 yes, at this right. point, so yeah. I mean, it's possible there's a generational. All, all yeah. I'm saying is, yeah. I'm just observing her toolkit as my toolkit. Right. All right. We're doing the same so, thing. So let's. We're going to get in the next section of what we're going to do about all this chamath. Um, I like the happy chamath, but there there has to be some. You know, a lot of stuff that pushes Silicon Valley forward is dissatisfaction, anger, insecurity, those kind of things do create that the, the irritation does create good things. I think I think anger is a fantastic motivator for the the zero to one path. I think it's probably the best. Uh-huh. I've never seen people who like happily are like it would be nice to do this. I think it's more like oh, I don't like that. Oh, this mm. could be better. And maybe anger is not the right word, but like, right. you know, it's irritation, irritation, whatever. Like, it, it, so those kind of like negative motivators tend to work really well in, in that zero to one. But at some point, your philosophy has to transition because yes. most people are motivated by irritation and anger. They're motivated by positivity and sort of like, you know, then an additive sense of being able to do things. Right. Right now, Silicon Valley, if you take away the emotional well-being of the employees, um, which, again, I think is in a very precarious state. Ask the big tech companies how many of their folks take them up on the free mental health checks, and I bet you'd be shocked that it's probably 30 40 50% now. Right. All right. Um, but if you take that off the table, then there's a structural business issue that we have here now, too. And it's something that I wrote in my letter last year, which is there's an enormous tax that we've been quietly paying to the big tech startups without realizing it. And those are the costs to AWS, Microsoft, Google, and then for hosting and web services, and then the tax to Facebook and and Google specifically sure. um, for acquiring customers. And it's roughly about 40 cents of every dollar. Yep. Then if you layer in the headcount costs, which is really about 50 to 60 cents of every dollar, you're already in a place where your real net margins are zero or negative. So hard to become successful. Kira, it's, not, it's, it's hard to even grow. Right. And so it creates a really dangerous, precarious startup culture, which is not one of innovation wins, but one where the person who can get tricked for the most money will survive. And then a lot of the good, really good ideas won't get capitalized because they're too risky. Yeah. 
All right, we're going to talk about that when we get back with Chamath. That's a really important issue with uh, Chamath Palihapati. He's the CEO of Social Capital and now a philosopher, which I'm enjoying quite a bit. When we get up, we're going to talk about that. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're here with Chamath Palihapitiya having an intense discussion, which I'm super enjoying. I really, I really, I'm so glad we're going to get to be girlfriends now. Finally, <laughs> I'm ready to be girlfriends. Oh, really? I am emotionally Braid open. my hair. I'm ready. I'm Are you? Yeah, I am. We hug yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. I'll tweet it. I'll tweet it. Yeah. Chamath, so, so you, you've called this a Ponzi scheme. The, the, yeah, whole, the whole, yeah. The whole, the whole startup so explain world. Explain that. This was super, you, you released this letter, what, like three or four months ago at yeah. this point? It was basically, I think there's an element of truth to this for sure. Um, but talk about kind of where. <laughs> he Kenny, sort of believes Kenny, you. Thanks for your fucking millennial backhanded compliment, <laughs> no, you no, douche. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> if you actually study up, the market, Chimak. it's true. So the, 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 the argument here is that, here, let's start with this. Who is getting fleeced? Who are the people who are losing in this Ponzi scheme? Employees. Em- employees of startups who yeah. are fed. Well, let me just explain it. Let me just explain it so it's easier. So let's just say, so the the three of us here in this room, let's just assume that we are the ecosystem, okay? And there's a company right there. So the company comes first to Kara and says, Kara, uh, invest in me. She says, sure. She gives him a million dollars and takes 10% of the company. And then she then says to him, well, I gave you a million dollars. I know you have to spend around 500000 for engineers. Please spend the other 500000 on Google and Facebook ads. Grow as fast as you can. The CEO may say, why? And Walkera will say, because you have to grow at all costs or it's death. What she's really saying is because it improves the odds that somebody now invests after me. That's what she's really saying. Uh-huh. Okay. A year passes. Now, that same company comes to me and says, Chamath, I've taken Kara's million, and I'm growing super fast. I did exactly what she said. Will you give me $5 million? And I want a $25 million valuation. I say, okay. So now, all of a sudden, I invested $5 million. Now he has another $5 million. Kara looks like a genius right, because she invests. She's got a 2.5x return in a year. Wow. That is amazing. She puts in a little bit more. I put in the most. And then I say to the CEO, um, hey, this is all fine and good, but, um, you know, growth or die, dude. Like, it's all about growth. You got to yeah. grow. Yeah. And he says, well, what does it mean? I'm spending so much on Google. No, spend more. Hire more engineers, build more features, hire more salespeople, spend more. And then again, he starts to spend 50 cents of every dollar on Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, et cetera. And then he shows up on, and then now the greater fool shows up. You, Teddy. Yes, I am the Series C investor here. Series C investor. And Kara calls you, and then I call you. Teddy, you have to take a look at this. It is going gangbusters. Remember when you guys, remember when we we would always have picnics at the Harvard School of Business, and, you know, you helped, you know, zip up my fleet vest one day right before it started to rain? Well, think of this as a payback. Think of this as a payback. 
and, I, and I talk to Kara. I talk to you. you know? and I see. I see remember, the markups. Remember when we were. Happy. Remember when we were strolling the quad in the Stanford, uh, <laughs> I didn't go to Stanford uh, School of Business? Yes. And uh, you know, Kara, you lent me a pair of espadrilles, and I said, "Thanks, Kara." Espadrilles. <laughs> You're not okay. going to be my girlfriend consider, now. Consider this a payback. over. Yeah. yeah. And so you go and invest, you know, $20 million at a $100 million valuation. Now Kara's investment has 10x. My investment is 4x. You guys are telling your LPs everything's great. Now Kara goes to her LPs and says, uh, I did amazing. I put in a million bucks and it's worth almost $10 million. I want to raise a $10 million fund now and I'll do it again. I say to my LPs, hey, I, I put in money and I 4x'd it. Can you, I want to raise a $300 million fund. You eventually find somebody else, and then you're like, I'm going to raise a billion-dollar fund. So what has really happened? One, the company is not really any more incrementally successful, okay? All we've done is inflated the costs of him running his business. Two, Kara's raised more money, which means she has to put more companies to work, which by definition means unless the quality of the companies increases, she's going to put in more money into crappier companies. Yep. I'm going to keep doing it. You're going to keep doing it. So this is all about passing the buck. Who gets rich in this scheme? Kara, me, and you get rich. Why? Because we don't put a lot of our own money in the game. We're we put fees off the funds. Yeah, I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, here's a great litmus test. Here, entrepreneurs, write this down. When you go and raise money, ask your GP when you get multiple term sheets, how much of the fund is GP capital? Almost none. And you're going to be shocked. It's like 1% or 2% most funds? Yeah. Right. I was 30%. 30 cents of every dollar was me. You should take the term sheet from the person that has the most skin in the game because they will be the most rational. Because now if they tell you to spend it all on Facebook and Google That's ads, your money. it's my money. Right. You know, I used to tell this to my team all the time. Hey, I get that you want to write a $30 million check, but do you understand that if you say yes, I'm going to wire out $10 million tomorrow? So let me pay attention. It's amazing how much more you pay attention when your own skin yep. is on the game. Yep, yep. So the VCs win because you get paid a salary. And, you know, eventually the dirty little secret is if you raise enough funds, Kara, and I raise enough funds, we make more money in his failure because we'll have many more of his kind of companies than if they're successful. And then in some crazy sadistic way, VCs actually want you to fail. And they want you to take a long time to fail because by that point they've stacked up so many funds. They've collected so much fees. Your outcome is irrelevant. Yeah. Think of how gross and misaligned that is. It doesn't matter about the company. So, number one, the company loses. Number two, the the VCs win. Number three, the limited partners who then put in money in the future also lose. Why? You know, um, the Muscular Dystrophy Association shows up and says, my God, I've heard you've made money for Harvard and Stanford and Yale and Princeton and MIT. Can you help us? We're just trying to help cure muscular dystrophy. I'm like, yeah, I'll take your 50 million bucks. But they're in, like, the seventh fund. I'm already tired and rich. They haven't caught up to the Ponzi scheme yet. They haven't caught up yet. So the really earnest LPs that are late in the game, they get screwed. Yeah. And then the employees get screwed because the employees are left getting these options. The valuations go crazy because now Teddy, you know, once Teddy gives this entrepreneur $50 million, that entrepreneur goes to Dropbox or somebody else and says, hey, leave Dropbox. Hey, leave Square. Leave Airbnb. Look at how fast my equity is going up. But now what happens if, if you're not realized that person gave up real money for fake money? And so now what is his or her choice? The next time is to be much more skeptical or to say, well, if I'm going to play this game, I'm going to be really promiscuous. I'll be here for a year. I'll be there for a year because they could all be lying right. or they may all not know better. 
And hopefully this whole thing just doesn't catch up while I'm still in Silicon so Valley. One, I can make enough money and move to Austin. All right. When does it catch up? Um, when does the bill come due, Jamath? Yes. I think that we are going to have a non— like, I think the— it's probably in the next three to five years, and it will not be from our industry. It will be in the debt markets, and this is the way it plays out, I think. There's a huge—like, if you thought the great financial crisis was a big deal right. around mortgages, oh, my God, wait till you see the amount of debt companies have and, um, you know— the complexity around all of that is is far beyond what we can all talk about. But when companies start defaulting on their debt, what it really means is those same LPs, Harvard, Stanford, Yale, MIT, the Muscular Dystrophy Association, Ford Foundation, Knight Foundation, all these people, right, will lose an enormous amount of money. Because in all of their asset allocation models, the debt part of their portfolio is in a much, much bigger than venture capital. Venture capital is like 1% or 2%. It's an afterthought. Right. But if you start to suffer huge losses over there, huge, right. you're going to start to just redeem, and you're going to want to be super liquid. To pull money from venture, and then— Well, you'll pull money from everywhere. Right. First, you'll start with hedge funds because they have easier redemption cycles. But it won't be enough because now, you know, take Harvard, just a simple example. They still have to pay teachers, buy buildings, you know, pay tuition, whatever. Or the Knight Foundation, they have to pay their programs— and then they're going to look around and say, okay, well, sell this other portfolio. And so when it hits venture, it's going to hit it that way. And that's where I think people will say, you know, a very dispassionate financial buyer will say, these assets are worthless. Why did you, why, Teddy, why did you, why did you think this was a $100 million company? Right. The valuation is really somewhere between Kara and Chamath's original value. Right. This company doesn't make any money. It loses money. So at that point, when when Kara says, let's raise her next fund, or you raise your next fund, or I'm raising my next fund, suddenly the LP doesn't have as much cash to put in. Yeah, and, and so that's why, why do you think Kara raises funds every two years now? Why do you think Chamath raises money every two years? Which means that Chamath and Kara have to put the money out faster, which is why you wake up every day and you see 50 deals a day and you think, where's all this money coming from? Right. 50 good ideas. This is the Ponzi scheme that we are living so in. So how do you get to the good ideas? One of the ways I think about it with, with when you're talking about Amazon, Google, and Facebook is three semi-trailers running down a highway that nobody can get around. It's a ta- You use the term tax. tax. I think of I it as tax. nobody can get around. Yeah. How do you get the good ideas? Where are them? How do you create good ideas? You know, you mentioned some others, Airbnb, Uber, others. Good ideas, right? Yeah. Interesting ideas. Right now, I think that you'll be well compensated in looking at the parts of the American industry that have largely been nonprofit and making them for profit. So to me, that's roughly, and I know healthcare you'll say is for profit, but it basically behaves as a really horrible, pathetic nonprofit. Um, education, um, I think those two areas will have enormous amounts of outcomes, um, like big, big, big multi hundred billion dollar outcomes. Climate change uh, will be enormous. Um, and then m- making us uh, less dependent on the earth in general, space, all that stuff will be enormous. So those are like four areas that are pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. The way that I look at things now is I look at the, I look at the product of two, two concepts. One is, is this a hard thing? And I try to ask myself, like, what is super hard about this? And it takes a while because some things are non-obvious. Because like when somebody presents you something, it's like, oh, I built this thing and here's how it behaves. You're like, well, that's pretty straightforward. But you got to find the hard thing. 
And then what I like is this idea of like how much courage does it take to start it? And right now I'm infatuated with this idea that you want really low courage to start something because then all of us take a shot on it because you're like, well, what's the big deal? Right. But it has to have a path to get much higher where you have to have more and more courage as it gets bigger. So, for example, like I just saw Free Solo. Yeah, I've heard it's okay. great. It's good. So that's an enormous outcome because it's the product of a hard thing and this initial courage threshold. Hard thing, HT, is just, it's huge. I'm going to free solo El Capitan. Okay, that's like, it's an enormous thing. It's undebatable, right? But the initial courage is de minimis. It's take the first step. Right. You're on the ground. Take the second step. Now you're still on the ground. The 10th step, now you're still functionally on the ground. By the time you're 400 feet in the air, wow, your courage has to go way up. Right. Every next step is incrementally harder. But the product of all that, if you're successful, is an enormous feat of mankind, of humankind. And I think that every time I look at a company now, I first look in only those four categories because I'm deeply infatuated. Them. Anything that's nonprofit right now? Huh? Anything that's the four categories? No, no, no I'm just saying health. I mean, if I want to be specific, healthcare, education, space, climate change. And the fourth one, the fifth one for me is AI. Like meaning like hardcore like chips and chip design and AI, those five areas. But I ask the same question. Is it relatively non-courageous to start, but will it get deeply courageous to keep going? And if it were to happen, is this an unbelievably hard thing that would just shock people? Both of those questions are relatively easy to answer, actually. Um, but so if you look at like Airbnb, you can paint it in this example. What is the hard thing? Make every room in every building that's not a hotel bookable and behavable like a hotel. That's a hard thing. You could value it as high or low, but it doesn't matter. It's a hard thing. Yeah. What's the initial courage threshold? It's super low. I scraped a bunch of listings on Craigslist and I stuck them on my website. But now look where they are. It's much, you have to be much more courageous. Oh my God, we may need to get into airlines. Oh my God, we may need to be in vacations. Oh my gosh, it's, now you have to have real courage. Right. Take Uber. What's the hard thing? I'm going to eliminate all car ownership in the world. It should be a rentable, usable resource like water. Okay, that's super hard. Initial, courage threshold, super low. Get some limos. I'm taking a couple of these guys, black cars. But now look at the courage threshold you have to have. Hey, uh, how do you deal with passenger safety? Hey, how do you deal with uh, autonomous vehicles? Hey, how do you, I mean, it's just- How do you it, deal with New York City? It's complexity on yeah. top of complexity, and you have to have more and more courage. Um, so I like to take those two ideas and apply it to those five markets and see uh, if there's so things are, that I like. Are you just investing alone now, right? You're just, we just have a few more minutes, but you're just doing it by yourself? Do you have partners? Yeah. I have partners, yeah. I have like 25, 30 people that help me. Really? Yeah. That work for you, just yeah. work for you. Yeah, they're my partners. They help me. You know, they, they lead certain areas. Like, you know, I have a great partner that I work with that leads a lot of stuff in space. He's wonderful. I have another partner that leads a lot of stuff in sort of marketing and then But is it different than and, before? Well, it was more of acknowledging what it was before. It was a um, benevolent dictatorship in disguise as a democracy. Ah, uh, was never that. Those are the that. worst. Those I are the love worst. A benevolent dictatorship, as you know. Uh, and... Constitutional and, reform right there. I, I and now it's just more me. of a thing where, you know, what I would love to do is do what sort of Buffett and Munger have done, like be evolving my mind, be increasingly detached and dispassionate, be more emotionally aware of myself, make fewer, much bigger decisions of impact. Which you have talked about. 
and then not answer to anybody except my life partner's partner and my children. Oh, I see. That's it. And everybody you else know, can go He's a very themselves. happy person, Warren Buffett, I have to tell you. I just had dinner with him. He seemed with the happiest. Buffett? So happy. He's incredible. He's happy. That's exactly yeah. what I got to say. He's happy. I mean, honestly. He did like, eat seven lamb chops during our sitting. This is, in Oma, this is in Omaha. Yeah. So. We had right. a good time. We, uh, I remember this dinner or this lunch we had, and he didn't eat because he was just talking. It was like a, he had a Caesar salad. Yeah. And it's just funny. And like we were talking and he made some comment about like Crestor or something. Like he's like, oh, I take 20 milligrams mm-hmm. or 30 milligrams of Crestor. And he's like, it's, or maybe it was something, a Lipitor, I don't know. And he's like, it's the most incredible drug that's ever been. And then as soon as he says it, like, kind of like the timing was impeccable, this enormous Sunday lands on his table. And he just he starts digging into this. I know, this. he does. It's incredible. <laughs> he does. he likes so, ice cream. He's happy. He is. He's happy. I would love to be happy. He is a happy man. You know? Yeah. I'm reasonably happy right now. Yeah. All right. And then so so are, are you bullish on Silicon Valley? or? And then I'll let Teddy ask the last yeah, question. But not really. You, no? Not really. I think— What uh, has to happen for everyone to go undergo a chamath? And that's what it'll be called. It'll be like a verb. Uh, Did you have your chamath yet? No. I, I, no think that, really. I think that the way that people express this now is people in their dissatisfaction and disillusionment with this place leave. Um, and so you'll see better and more companies get built yeah, outside of the valley. a lot of people have left recently. Dan Rose yeah. went to Hawaii. A lot of people. You're yeah. right. They leave. They're unhappy, Kara. Yeah. All the money in the world doesn't make you happier. Oh, I know that. You're it, so poor, all you have is money. That's what I always say. It gets you— to the point of realizing how unhappy you are, faster. Ah, so what, what would you tell, you know, an entrepreneur out there who right now is like... What, Chamath? Un- like, no, no, no. I mean, someone... You yeah. think, I think you correctly point out there are a lot of people who are kind of quietly unhappy. Like, how do they deal with their unhappiness given the... Pr- I think there's a lot of pressure here, right? I mean, everyone feels pressure if you're a CEO, if you're a VC. What's your... What's, what's your your, your two sentence well, life just like, these folks. Just like, like if your health is degrading and you've been eating chocolate every day, step one, stop eating chocolate every day. Step two, get some exercise. What is the version of that for being mentally healthy? Yeah. I think is compartmentalize these things in a way so that you put them in context. And like there should almost be a disclaimer like on cigarettes, like the shit you're about to consume is not true. It may make you feel uh-huh. like somebody else is kicking ass while your life sucks ass. It's not true. Now go on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you just really need to to really have good boundaries for yourself. That's step one. And then step two is, for me, what I did was I read a book that profoundly changed my life. I, I, I grew up in an alcoholic family. And the book is called The Adult Children of Alcoholics oh, by Joan Wojtitz. It was fucking transformational in my life because it basically disarmed all of my dysfunction and said, Jamath, you're like everybody else. And it made me feel so understood and seen for the first time in my life. So there are either books or therapy or all this stuff that I think is just so profoundly helpful to people to disarm the things that right now they feel or are exacerbated when they're online. And that then will result in a much emotionally healthier and well-balanced person capable of being an incredibly productive founder. To some extent, these are founders who are unhappy and think they're alone and unhappy, right? But the reality it's is they're correlated. There, there are a lot of these folks who are, there are a lot of people here who are unhappy. They just don't really, no one talks about it. Or they express it. They don't express it. They don't express it, right. So. Or do, they don't have an access to it, access to express it. So they don't feel it. I think they express it. They express it by job hopping. They express it by having a bunch of fleeting relationships. They express it by, you know, feeling relatively disconnected. They express it by being angry. They express it. It's just that we're not doing a good job of actually looking at these things and actually putting them all together in, into a mosaic. Can I ask you a question, a personal question? What do people are you? What do people think 
you, of you? What have they? What do your real friends say? Like, what the hell, Chamath, or what? Um, they were shocked at how much I went through personally, and I think that they've been really open to who I am now. What's funny is like I haven't lost the charismatic crazy guy part. No, that's clear. But it's um, it's much more compartmentalized and it's more whole. It's healthier. Like you have to understand, Kara. Like that, my life back then was nuts. Like it was it was not sustainable. Like fucking Vegas and L.A. and New York. It was nuts. Oh, I remember. I'm hot. telling you, that dinner was, I came back, I said, Jamal was lost. But Kara, Kara, you went to bed. I'm telling you, like, if you had followed me around for the four hours, like, it's... I went to bed. It That that, that lifestyle... I'll be honest, I couldn't wait, get, get, wait, that get lifestyle, away from you all. Well, that lifestyle was me self-medicating my yeah. happiness. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was doing. Yeah, I called it forced fun. And so there were all of, there was all these people in the periphery that always wanted to be around that lifestyle. Yeah. Mm. I get it. Yeah. It can be really kind of intoxicating to Looks see like it Michael touch Cohen it. Michael Cohen talked about it yesterday. Uh, but way. it's it's not it's it just leaves the person in it. I think, or it left me. Yeah. Completely broken and unhappy. Well, can you Silicon Valley change? Because a lot of things you want to create beautiful things. Like, I think so. I'm working on a lot of things right now. One thing that I love is um, this idea of like I want to. I, I think like disarming the concept of mental health. Yeah. Disarming it, and then giving people a better, simple toolkit. And I think there are simple things um, that can work for a lot of people to make them feel like they're not alone and that they're seen and they're understood. That's it. Those three goals. And I've been working on a, on something that um, maybe I can come back and tell you when I'm ready. All right. Well, it's a lot about self-reflection, right? We're talking about like, sometimes the yeah. other day I was talking Happiness. to some Silicon yeah. Valley people. I'm like, it's a miracle any of you can see in the mirror because you don't have any self-reflection. The best thing that ever happened to me through all of this is my kids looked at me and they said, Dad, you are so much nicer. <laughs> and if you had talked to my friends, they would have said, you know, uh, he can be crazy from time to time, but he really shows up as a dad. Uh -huh. And so I always thought that I was really doing a good job not being my dad to my dad. Right. But then even when my kids saw the mm. Delta in the last 18 months, I was like, okay, I'm, d I'm doing the hard work. Nobody else gives a fuck, but yeah. I, they care, and that's all, that's all that matters. Oh, Chamath. I like this new Chamath. I like new Chamath. I like <laughs> old Chamath, too. Old Chamath was funny. We'll merge the two. And then all right. The we'll have, all right. The best Chamath. All right. All you Silicon Valley people, you're going to undergo Chamath, just so you know. Chamath, it was great talking to you. I hope Thanks, you come Karen. back again. I want to hear the things you're working on all the time. You're a very creative and interesting person. Thanks to you all for listening. You can also find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend about the show. Thanks also to Teddy Schliefer here. Thanks for having Thanks, me. Teddy. Um, if you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I'm going to do a live podcast on April 2nd in the Studio Theater, focusing on AI and self-driving cars. To learn more, just go to events.recode.net slash AI. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. I am always happy, Jamath, I have to say. That's <laughs> I amazing. I really am. I'm a very happy person. I'm a very lucky happy. person. I am a happy person, uh, but I do whatever the fuck I want. Jamath, where can people find you online? Are you still going At Jamath and uh, Jamath at Gmail. Are you still uh, tweeting up a storm? I am. You're a very clever tweeter. Yeah. And Teddy? I'm at Teddy Schleifer. That's right. Now that you're done with this, and he also has stories on Recode and other places. Now that you're done with this, go check out our other podcast, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks again for listening to this fantastic, cathartic episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. We'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series, 
HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots. So you find the right thing to watch every time. With thousands of options for you and the family to choose from, it's the streaming platform of your dreams. HBO Max, where HBO meets so much more. Start streaming now at HBOMax.com. Hold up. 